Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and you are listening to the first episode from 2016 of Vodka O'Clock. And joining me on this fine day, I hope it is, I don't know, it's kind of gloomy here, is uh, Josh Stallings. And he's been on the show before, and, um, you know, he's an awesome writer, and we're going to talk about writerly things and life things, because he's wonderful to just uh, pick his brain. So that's what this is going to be all about. So um, don't forget that you can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash Unmasked. Hey, Josh, how are you? I'm good. It's a little early for Vodka O'Clock, but okay. Yeah. Never too early, is it, really? It's, you know, I really, I don't buy into the whole time of day thing. It is always vodka clock somewhere in the world, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I can eat, people give me weird looks if I want to eat dinner at breakfast time. Like, I don't care. Why do people, everybody understands breakfast for lunch. They don't understand dinner for breakfast. Why is that? I don't know. Okay. I don't, but I'm okay. If I'm like really hungry, forget it. I might want like, you know leftovers for breakfast yum so so i'm reading young americans right now and this is my favorite thing that you've done (laughs) it is a weird experience i'm having in that this is going to sound strange i don't mean to be because there's a lot of people loving it giving it like people that i really respect saying it's the best thing i've written and to me it was a palate cleanser it was like sorbet Right, and, that and that's the Moses you know, books were so fucking hard and dark, you know. Right, they were hard to they were hard to read too. I I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can imagine how okay the the Moses books were there's it's a trilogy, and then you had your memoir, which I have not read yet, so it's on my Amazon wish list, people. Um, so the so you've got these four books that tackle some dark subjects and. Life of crime, but, uh, you know, life you know, on the fringe of sex work and drugs and guns and all this deep, dark, gritty, gritty stuff. So in the four book span, how many years was that of your your life that was dedicated to living in that dark headspace? Um, a, a book a year concentrated but the first book was was uh, Beautiful Naked and Dead was really about three years in the writing because it wasn't good enough. And it's something I feel about, like, one of the problems with the digital revolution is people are publishing their first books long before they should. And I did it a different way. As I, I, I got to be friends with Charlie Houston and with Tad Williams, who I grew up with. Writers I really respected and let them beat the shit out of me till I got it right. And so I didn't put anything out until I really believed it. So that first one took a while. They get faster. Now, I can, now I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm at about a book a year, and that's with a, with a hard day job as well. Okay. But, so what's um, is the day job connected to publishing? No, the day job is I edit movie trailers. Oh, okay, right. I've been doing that since 21. The only I've had two jobs. I've worked as a writer and a script doctor, and I've edited movie trailers. That's how I supported my family. And we got I got married very young and had kids young, and just so I've been knocking out the bills since I was 21, banging them out, as we say. Wow. But I've been really lucky in that. Uh, 
I want to, this is just a side, side, sidebar. Um, my father passed away last year. And before he passed away, he was an artist and a freak and a bunch of other things. And I loved him, but he was hard and it was all kinds of things. But we made peace when he passed because I had about six months where I was up there quite often hanging out. And what I realized is having an artist for a dad has all these negative sides to it because they can be flaky and he's self-absorbed. But the way my brain's wired, if I didn't know you could do creative for a living, I would have been screwed. I'm so dyslexic. I'm so my brain it just works in such a way that if I hadn't discovered that I could make a living in editing or some other creative form, I really would have been dead. I'm it's either that or digging ditches, and I'm not kidding. Like those are the, the only things I'm kind of fit for is I'm big, so I could I could do physical labor. I've always been able to do that. So I could either be a laborer digging ditches or something creative and not much in between. <laughs> I was right. never gonna be white collar. <laughs> just wasn't built yeah. that way. So that's um I, yeah, I didn't realize that your that your dad had passed away. I'm sorry, yeah. um, but you do have in your characters you do have these interesting relationships where either there's like not a dad in the picture or it's kind of like much younger girls with kind of older guys yeah. happening. You know, um, that's so you sort of feel that absence. There is, I th- like when I sit down to write young Americans, I decided to not write about my family. So I did some things kind of on purpose to, like, I was raised Quaker. I made a decision at the beginning to make them a Jewish family, just to sort of separate in people's minds. So many people think I'm Moses that I said, I want to write a book that isn't doesn't look and feel like it's about me. Because I'm no more Moses than everything is me, but everything's also not me. And I really consciously took that world and said, I'm going to step away from it. And the truth is, at the end of the day, it's as much about my life as anything I've ever fucking written <laughs> Well, it's, it's very much about family, um, but not only the main characters, Sam's family, but also the family that she has invented. And that's really big to me. It's really big to a lot of other people that feel like misfit toys. Um, (laughs) Good term. Misfit toys, aren't we? (laughs) We just are, you know, I just, I pick my, that's why, you know, I, I love the, the conventions and things, even though they're, they're kind of hard for me to tolerate now, but I love going and seeing people and you just get to, you, you get your band of merry men together and um, it's, that's your family. It's Andrew, Andrew Vox. Yeah. Who I loved a lot when I was younger, read him a lot. He's one of those other writers I just adored. And there's certainly pieces of him in, in the Moses stories. You can see them. I, I, I tend to put things in obvious ways when I'm stealing them from authors I love. But one of the things that he really brought up in, in is the idea of the family of your choosing. He wrote about broken people who build their own families. And this, this idea that you build your own family, it isn't necessary blood. And sometimes blood is a is a barrier between family where finding your own family of choosing is something you could actually build the right one, the one you wished you had. It's really true. And in fact, um, a friend of mine, Elsa Henry, who's been on the show a couple of times before she uh, hosted Friendsgiving instead of, you know, Thanksgiving. (laughs) She's just, you know, she's like whoever is around and doesn't have a place and wants to come hang out with, you know, with her and her husband and their animals was invited to just, you know, go and, and do their feasting. Uh-huh. And that's like so cool. It's like I usually, if I'm, you know, I mean, I, it's just like me and my folks and um, so now there's uh, another person added to the picture and other than, it's still pretty small. Yeah. So I, even if I was alone, 
I spent time online. It was amazing. How many people would just still just be on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> like, hello, other people that don't feel like talking to actual family. <laughs> okay. I noticed at Christmas and at Twitter, people are around. I mean, at Thanksgiving. But last night when Star Wars opened, social yeah. media was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that says more about my friend circle than anything else. I turned it off because I'm like, every single person I know is at the movies right now. I'm just going to watch a bunch of 30 Rock episodes on Netflix. <laughs> Netflix. Okay. River. Yes. Been watching it. I'm like three or four in. Oh, my God. Yeah. Weird. There's a thing that they do. It's in Stuart Neville's uh, Ghost of Belfast. Is There's this sort of, it's like... Um, you know, magic realism that comes out of South and Central America. It's kind of like that. There's Celtic magic realism that Stuart deals with in his books, which is a, a IRA hitman who's haunted by the ghosts of people he's killed. And you never quite know in that whether they're real or whether he's crazy. He like just walks that line where they do. We don't as American writers deal with it that way, but because we seem to feel the need to define things, but it's been uh, like a real it's been in, in South American writing forever is in Latin writing, this idea that, well, some things may or may not be real. Magic doesn't always need to be defined. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's cool. It's there's so I want to try and get to it. It's something I, I, I look at things in a new book and go, I want to try and figure out how to get to there. I wrote a short story that gets pretty close. It's about mental illness, but I, it's like I, something about it. I just go, that's really cool. Cause the world feels that way to me. It feels much less, solid than it looks yeah when i try talking about that to specific certain groups of people it's either they seem like you need to embrace some kind of religion or that you're anti-science yes and, th- and I'm like, why is there an either or? <laughs> I love the, there was two people from the, uh, it's like the National College of Scientists anyway, if there's some term like that, when they were being asked by Congress about creationism. And they said, here's the problem, is that they said, we don't have an opinion on spirituality or religion. It's just in a different realm than science and shouldn't be taught in the same room. And I thought that was really a respectful way to look at that and go, yeah, there's some things that aren't science. And that just because something can't be proven with science doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because we all know things that we know exist. I have friends that I know when they're going through a hard time and they're 500 miles away from me. And I will call them and they'll say, God, I need to talk to you. Well, science doesn't know why that happens. They'll say, oh, that's coincidence. Well, it happens enough that all of us know that feeling to go, yeah, or (laughs) we're connected deeper than you can measure. Yeah, it's I don't I totally am there with you on that. And I did not get to have the joys of growing up in hippie dippy California. <laughs> oh. Oh, it was joyous. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, well reading through Young Americans and the setting is so much an important part of the book. You set it in the 70s and um this you know the 70s here, well at least my 70s. I I was pretty sheltered. Um was really it was so different i mean you talk about the the clubs and you know the fashion in in great detail and it's so funny because uh, you know it was like the as as well as i knew you and still didn't know enough 
the way they there was so much discussion about David Bowie and stuff. I'm thinking, wow, I totally pegged him for like a thorough good guy. <laughs> like I just, I was just so surprised reading, you know, like the interviews on with uh, Elizabeth White on on her post yeah. and other interviews that you've done. How you, you know, you talked about having those skinny tight pants and going commando and wearing your silk shirts that were shiny. And oh my god, we were we were glitter kids. It, a term which is, is I've discovered controversial because a lot of people use the term glam for glam rock. I never liked the term because it sounded cheesy to me. And I, I always was I was into glitter rock, not glam rock. It turns out they're the same thing, just regional. But no, it's I dedicated this book to Tad Williams, you know, the fantasy writer. He and I grew up in this world together. We were teenagers together running in this world. And to be around brilliant people who are really smart and thinking and doing music and into this wild counterculture scene that people think punk is tough because it's all angry. Man, what really scared people was like David Bowie and bisexuality freaked the fuck out of people. Even the hip oh, got I'm freaked sure. out by his sexuality and by, by a culture that said, yeah, you're into free love. We're into love everyone, regardless of gender. And that just sort of like, I, I think it's a much stronger statement than the punk statement of I'm angry, you know? Well, I think, yeah, I think pansexuality is, is feared in, um, <laughs> yeah, to, to an extent. Because, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of people, they're kind of cool with gay men to a degree or they're way more cooler with lesbians, but, um, uh, but they're okay saying, okay, yeah, I liked Freddie Mercury because, you know, he was this gay man and they completely erase the fact that he was bi yeah. or pa probably pansexual because now we say pan to include anybody, but um, it's the opening quote of my book is from David Bowie. And one of it is about how much bisexual I won't lie, but bisexuality has been great for my career. Besides it's yeah. a lot of fun. And I thought, cause I really, okay. I'm also a contrarian and I had somebody I respect a lot, an agent who I respect a lot, tell me two things. She said, A, you can't make a heist novel that's also a coming-of-age novel. Those two don't cross over. And then she said, and I don't think people really care who's fucking who, meaning gay, straight, all of that. So I immediately picked a quote right away to say, no, this is actually about who's fucking who. And mm -hmm. I delivered a book that is, is a coming-of-age story. At I think it's perfectly fine because when you talk about other coming of age stories where, or if it's not like a coming of age, like if that's not the main theme, but you're talking about a YA story and you're putting younger characters through some kind of series of challenges among those challenges is usually some discovery of sexuality. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and it's usually and the, I mean, talking about a heist, it's there's usually things like, hey, we have to go steal this from Farmer Ted <laughs> in order to make the widget work and get out into our portal and go back to our world. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm I. I so intentionally look at this as a YA novel. That's yeah, odd, I, I, I totally do. get that. Feel. I, and I mean, think about like Lord of the Rings is is a heist book. Yes, it is. <laughs> and. To Kill a Mockingbird is a coming-of-age crime story. Yeah. And the best books we like cross over genre in a way that surprises us. Not the way that we... Publishing has gotten to a place right now that I feel very strong that what it's about is how do you... Trying to convince writers to write something that they already know how to sell. As opposed to trying to figure out how to sell something they haven't seen before. 
And that's the ones I'm interested in writing. I'm not interested in writing something they already have written. I, why would I do that? It's been written. I'm interested in crossing over into something that isn't out there yet. I think this would be, I mean, so far, I've, I think I'm on chapter eight or nine right now. I, this would be absolutely enjoyable for, for teen plus readers. I, you know, like higher teens. Like, I'm not going to yeah. give this to a 13-year-old, but, um, you know, if it's, you know, truly a 16-year-old, 17-year-old in high school, this would be fine. I've actually, you know, I work with teenagers at the Unitarian Church I did in the past, and, and one of my students just sent me a photograph of her holding my book, and I was so proud because the first thing I've written that I think that teenagers should read. You know, that I think is it's there's nothing and and I don't think that's about content for me. It's about darkness, darkness of story. You know, there, there's a certain darkness well, it, of the Moses that I don't want to feed into teen angst. And this has right. a lightness of story. You you handle the characters in Young Americans so differently. Like the main character, Samantha, is a stripper. Your main characters in the other books besides Moses, I mean, but the girls he's with are strippers and sex workers and then there are you know the victims of trafficking which is totally different but the consensual wanting to be there you know to earn their their pay as strippers yeah. i'm talking about um so you've got these women and, and they have the same job in two vastly different presentations yeah yeah and she is sam is nobody's victim and she's nobody's she I, I purposely wrote the first scenes before you discover she's a stripper, you discover she's a badass who kicks her boyfriend's ass so that you really get to know her going through her in a different way than the Moses books actually are in the trilogy start with a wounded little girl and end with him being with a woman of his own age, slightly older, who's an assassin. It's really this this three book trilogy that gets you to the phases of who women can be and goes ultimately Moses gets smart enough to go, I think I'll go with the ass kicker, but it's not, it's less a statement on what strippers are and more a statement on what I was trying to look at in those books of this sort of growth of womanhood. And, you know, the covers of those books are, are even that They're, they show this growth of womanhood. Right. I noticed the, uh, the chain, well, the covers, well, it's so funny that you actually, that you bring up the covers because your books have that dark, gritty and sexual content and sexual violence and um, just the, you know, the whole presence of violence because it's a, it's a real hard boiled crime book. Um, but the covers of your books, did you see the new Ghostbusters posters yesterday? No. Oh, I can't okay. wait. <laughs> so the new, like all female Ghostbusters mm -hmm. posters came out. And to me, they looked like they were sci-fi version of, like, bondage erotica. Oh, no! I mean, I'm like, they, they were recolored and, like, to make them all black, except for spot coloring on, like, the logo or the spot coloring on the, you know, whatever weapon they're holding or something like that, the, the proton packs and stuff. And, like, the Melissa McCarthy one, she's holding this proton pack, but it's zoomed in so close that all you see is, like, the barrel of this thing, and it just looks like this big sci-fi dildo. Oh, God. And oh. and the rest of the picture is black and, like, black, just dark, dark shades of gray. Their, their outfits, which you know are tan, look like black leather. Oh. I'm like, who is the fucking designer that made these posters where they all look like covers of crime or bdsm erotica like who well, did here, cover here's the truth covers? okay because i work in posters and in, and in 
trailers, the company I'm in, has, does both. For posters, they hand in, we usually hand in 1,100, 2,000 comps before they pick one. So it isn't who designed it, it's which studio guy chose it, right? Okay, yeah, fair enough. It's like whoever designed it was just trying to get a paycheck, but they did. I think of Ghostbusters, I love the original, and what I think of Ghostbusters is it's white and red. That's Ghostbusters. It isn't black and moody. It's white and red. It's comedy. It's light. Yeah, that's not what they did. They tried to make these into like sexy book cover pictures. Which is, I'm I was afraid I was going to lose my noir audience when I wrote and put out uh, Young Americans. I really because it's so not what noir is, and I was getting sick of where noir was. I've just I was tired of all the darkness around me. I feel my life has got enough darkness in it. I've had some real personal stuff that's very dark, and I've had enough. And. There's a guy, Eric Beatner, who I love and has written, I don't know, 14 BM Noir books and runs Noir Bar out here. And he's kind of like one of those guys. He reads more than anyone I know. He's super deep into Noir. And Young Americans is on his best of the year list. And he said, is the most fun I've had this year reading a book. And I thought, if I can get you, I think I can get the rest of y'all. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah, we're all really. a little tired of dark. Like the world's dark enough. Let's lighten it up a little, kids. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and that's all the different ways that we consume crime fiction. I mean, on TV, there's, you can have something as silly as Castle or Psych, you know, versus something like Criminal Minds and CSI. Yeah, and and everything in between. And it's not that I don't appreciate Dark. Hell, I love Ken Bruin. Of course I like Dark. I like a lot of these writers. But I also want to make sure that we as as a community have a bigger tool chest than that, that we have a tool chest that allows for comedy, that allows for lightness of heart, that allows to, you know, cause I don't want all one thing. I like the flavors. Yeah. And that's, I know that you were re- really specific in choosing the cover artist for young Americans oh my God. and how, <laughs> you know, you, it's like took some convincing and everything, but you can, you can see it's like, this is going to be something different. It's bright, bright neon pink with, you know, like the disco ball and that old font. Oh, you know, you know, that font was amazing. This guy, Chung Kong, who's a Dutch artist who I did, he does by day. He has another name and he does uh, advertising like I do. And at night he does reimagined movie posters and they're just stunning. And what I fell in love with, you know, the site DeviantArt, Sure, yeah. I used that to try and find an artist. And that and a couple of others. I was just searching. I knew the look I wanted and couldn't quite articulate it until I saw his work. And he's he does icons in a way. Like he could boil something down to a very simple icon that I would go, oh, that, you nailed that. So after convincing him, and it took some doing to do a book cover because he didn't do them. He didn't do commissions. And getting him to do this cover, I pretty much gave him free reign. I said, here's the story. I pitched him on. He said, well, that's interesting. Let me take a run at that. I said, and the only thing I can tell you is I'm known as a noir writer and I need something different. You figure out what the hell that means. And he came back with that color palette and it blew my fucking mind. It looks so good in a bookstore. I, I look at a bookstore and that book pops. The... It really does. Well, that's why I love cozy mystery covers <laughs> because they've gone through changes. They used to be so, like more like solid colors like that with really bright, you know, very bold, right. you know, letters. A lot of the letters on the the old paperbacks were raised. You could feel the, like the embossing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and if there was an image or graphic, it was something reasonably small. And now it's changed um, because these are trends. This is why I would make the mistake and I would buy the same book over and over again because they would change the cover and I'd go to the store and go get it and buy it. <laughs> but they, um, so now everything is cartoons. So the cover of the cozy mystery section, um, you'll see much more pastel colors and uh, curly, like very curvy fonts. And, um, or bold, you know, they could be serif, uh, sans serif font too. And the, but the, if there's a picture, a figure of a woman or a figure of a dog or, you know, a dog sitting in a, a window looking at flowers or something, it's all very cartoony now. So I, you know, was lucky and no cartoonist. So I went to one of them and I said, I need a book cover. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, here, I made a Pinterest board of just cozy covers for samples. And I was like, here, I know you can do this. Oh, that's... And by the way, it's about murder. <laughs> I, I am so intrigued by this idea that what you're doing kind of blows my mind in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I jokingly, uh, a couple of years ago, tried to convince my little sister, who's also a writer, that she and I should write, start writing um, uh, zombie cozies. And oh, sure. I thought zombie cozies would be good. And, and then we got from there to Viking cozies, which I think is really the big one. <laughs> that does sound perfect for you. I know there's, I've read a couple um, magical ones and vampire ones. There's a, there's a real funny uh, vampire series where she just like, she doesn't want it. Like the first, I read the first one and she just like, she completely is in denial. She doesn't want to be a vampire. She's pissed because she, um, now that she's dead, other people are in her house and trying to sell her things and all she wants are like her designer shoe collection. It's, so. isn't it, it's weird to me that these yeah, I've talked a lot in the last couple of years, and, and people may get bored of it, but I'm so tired of genre as an idea that it sticks you into something. I've been on panels now with cozy writers that I really like, and I got everybody rolled their eyes when, when all the noir writers, when I said I've read your books and started talking to the ladies about the books they'd written, and I realized they hadn't read anything of mine to go on this panel, and I read theirs because I cared and because I noticed they were doing something interesting. And genre was holding people back from reading other people's writing instead of going everybody who's writing if it's good who cares what genre it is because i really believe that fiction is at heart the lie we tell so we can get to the truth and i think that's what we're all trying to do no matter what genre is we're trying to get to the truth to our personal truth and if you're telling the truth in a cozy it's just as interesting to me as if you're telling it in the darkest noir if you're telling your truth, if you're lying, I'm not that interested. And I can tell the difference pretty quickly. I think most readers can. You'll go, oh, no, you didn't really feel that. You just thought that would be a good thing to sell a book. And I can feel in, it's like, I got it. Somebody just recently, somebody came, drove all the way out from Salton Sea, which is a long way away, to a, to a reading I was doing and wanted me to sign the memoir. And he said what I've heard a lot, which is, he said, all the wild children is my story. And then he started to describe his youth, and you know what? They had nothing in common. And what I realized is if you tell the truth, universality comes out of it. What he saw was his life, even though all the facts were different. And that can be cozy. That can be anything. If you're telling the truth, you'll hit universal truths because truth is real. And making up what you think audiences want to read or what a genre demands of you doesn't get you anything good, in my opinion. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, it's not like we can relate to vampires, but, you know, it's, there's but there's going to be characters that you love. And... 
it's Charlie Houston stole stole this from somebody, I and mean, he he and I have argued back and forth about who he heard this from. So I just attribute it to him, and then let him take the heat for it. Is he said when we're writing crime fiction, it's just us with guns, and if, <laughs> and if you're writing vampires, just us drinking blood. You yeah. know that's the truth. We aren't. That's when somebody goes, "How could you write a vampire?" Well, how could I write anyone? It's just me with superposing who I am with something different in it. Yeah. And I, you know, to credit to where it's due, I had to, I had to cheat and look it up because I can, can never remember this woman's name. But it's Mary Janice Davidson is the author of Undead and Unwed, and that's <laughs> hilarious. That's really cool. <laughs> I love when you can make things like being dead, like Undead and Unemployed is like her one of her, the second one. And that's the thing. It's like this poor, you know, woman is, un, you know, she's an undead vampire now, and like she just wants her job, and she's, you know, like she's, it's ridiculous, and. I'm like, oh my god, this is totally relatable. She's out of work, and I'm like, it's, so yeah, it's, it's fun. We, I think we're living in kind of in the golden age of crossover into that, into both into horror and into fantasy. In way, it's Charlie when he was writing his early books had a contract like most of us do that said he couldn't put out crime fiction if he had a crime fiction out, and. I don't know why the publishers think we can't read more than one book a year. It turns out we do, but there, you know, that's just a long-standing thing. So he wrote the Joe Pitt series, which is basically hard-boiled novels with a vampire. But it was it was this crossover that allowed him to write two books a year, so he could, you know, get the stuff out there, make a living. It was really what it was about, supporting his family. But I look at that and go, that's what we're living in this golden age where you cross anything and crossover, and people are pretty okay with it, except for publishing and agents get nervous about it. But readers and writers don't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, it's true because in comics, people sort of um, they I think they do that to writers. I don't know that they do it to artists so much, but they they seem to do that to writers, and uh, and it seems to just be kind of a thing. I talked to a lot of people about you know whether or not they use a pen name, and you know and why they do or they don't. Um, you know, but one of the reasons was it was sort of like you almost felt like you had to say you wanted to put out a children's series or a YA series that would conflict with the erotica you wrote last year or something. And it's like, why? It's still all, you know, like you're saying, your your readers will follow you and if they're appropriate to. And Yeah, it's kind of it's it's I was talking to a cozy writer who's got a who's does a lot of good books, but she put out an erotic series which is actually selling quite well, but her publisher and agent said, you have to use a different name. And I sort of get it as a branding thing. Like I get the branding concept. I, I don't know that it's necessary. I think it, it it dilutes the deepness of a writer when you don't know they do all these different things for me, but I look at it from a writer's perspective. So what do I know? You know, no, that's just it. I, I agree with you. And I think it's, not, I don't. I don't really see the benefit these days in how we live in a time where we want to know every single detail about these people, whether we know them personally or not. And that's, you know, like the celebrities, the writers, the directors, the actors. Yep. You know, whoever they are, we feel like we want to know them. And I don't know how much you really get to know somebody if they have three different pen names. It's. Because it's all going to be exposed anyway, like J.K. Rowling learned. Yeah. I mean, it's no, all going to be – it's going to come out it, who's who. It will come out, and it's always funny to me when people want to know more about a writer's personal life, and you go, well, read their books. You'll know everything you ever wanted to know. You just have to decode it. 
You know, if you want to know yeah. how I feel about the world, read my books. It's much better than actually talking to me. You'll discover what I truly feel. In yeah, my mother hates reading my work. <laughs> I've decided that I'm not giving her any more. She's just, she's like, it's too hard for me to read this. It's all you. It's, there's a thing about that that is true about mothers and fathers and parents at different levels is it's very hard as a parent to divorce yourself from the fact that you feel responsible as that is one of your works of art as that child. And so you take personally what they do, not just personally because you love them, but personally because it reflects on you at some level. And I don't think there's any way around that, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, my father didn't, didn't, I read my father, my memoir before he died and it's hard. It's a hard book. It's fucking hard. Yeah. And at the end of it, because he's an artist, he's, he wanted, he said, I always wondered what it felt like to be you. And then we spent half a day talking about structural ideas and things I was doing with literature and what I was trying to do with the language in it. He was one of the few people who didn't get swept up in the story to the point where he couldn't talk about I, what I'm doing as a writer. But that's rare. He was an artist, and he also was completely self-absorbed, so it didn't really bother him. <laughs> I think he just listened mm-hmm. for the parts where his name was mentioned. You know? Yeah, I wanted to know how he came off. Yeah. But yeah. It's an interesting thing with this new book. Some people talk about tropes, and I don't really know what this means, and it's one of the wonderful things about never going to college and just reading a lot is they'll say, oh, you hit all of the tropes of the heist novel. I thought, I don't quite know what that means, but okay, good. And then they'll say, but what makes it different is your characters are so alive, so three-dimensional. And I thought, well, yeah, isn't that the point? Isn't that why we write anything, is to talk about alive people, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, you hope so, because uh, you can... you can feel when a character is one dimensional and sometimes, you know, maybe you're under the gun of some kind of stupid deadline or whatever it is that those characters end up coming out where they don't serve much purpose. You know, they call it the manic pixie dream girl, which I kind of disagreed with, but I call it thug thug number one. Um, Yeah. Minion. I was watching, I took my son on my birthday, my, older boy wanted to go see the Bond movie for my birthday. I said, great, let's go see the Bond movie. That sounds like a bonding thing. I like it. And I was watching it. I kept thinking, I want to write a novel from the point of view of thug number 27 in a Bond novel. The guy we never talk about, he just gets killed. And there's all these guys running around. There's a villain and a hero. And then there's all these guys kind of running around. I want to go, what would it be like to be one of those guys and no? What would Star Wars be like if you told it from Stormtrooper 437? What would that yeah, view of it be, you know? It's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And uh, and if you ever poke around YouTube, look up Chad Vader. <laughs> because Chad Vader is... <laughs> I Dark just spit coffee out of my nose. What a good Sorry. thing. Chad Vader. <laughs> Chad Vader is like supposedly Darth Vader's brother who works in like a supermarket. <laughs> it's like so fucking funny. I love it. There is something to that, though. It's It's... James Lee Burke has written in the last two books, he's written sections about war in, in the one, not the ones out right now, which is House of the Rising Sun, the one before that. He writes about a section where a character's in World War II, and he describes it in a chapter and a half. And I realize he takes you through a whole tank battle from one perspective, from a soldier trying to run around these tanks, crushing people and all these things. And it's such a small vision that it makes it real. 
and you feel all the stuff around it, but he doesn't try and tell you the whole story. And in the new book, there's a section of a guy in France in World War One, and just these giant, what mustard gas does is you're about to go out of the trenches and over the wall, and what it, these giant, huge plumes of dirt filling the, covering the sun as they blow up armaments around you. And it's this very small way of looking at war that is, we're so used to the big screen epic. And what's really interesting and what really captures me and makes me see the bigger war is just the one man's perspective or one woman's perspective of that event. Like not trying to tell the big picture. He doesn't tell you what army's here and what's over there. And left. what writers love to do is they call it world building. And sometimes it's just boredom building for me is to tell you where everything is. So you have the whole scene in your head. Well, I want to know what one guy going through it felt like who couldn't see all those things. All he could see is the little bit of road ahead of him, and he could see the ladder, and he could hear the whistle and go up over that hill and know he was going to be shot at. And that sort of dialing down of an idea down to one person's point of view is something I'm trying to really look at and think about for this new novel I'm working on right now, which is just trying to look at how do we tell a big story through a small perspective. I don't know if that makes any fucking sense, but it does to me, so I'm going by it. Yeah, no, I think it's fine. I think it's a good way to to break something down into something manageable. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, yeah, it's. I mean, that's kind of how I how I have to approach things that are t- I feel are too daunting. Yeah, I'm like, okay, well, what's the one thing that I? I mean, and seriously, to put it in like a real practical perspective, I'm like, okay, if I have to clean the house today, how can I break this down into something that I can handle? And what you know, it's like, okay, I will do this part. I will dust right now for the next you know half an hour it's, and it's you know breaking it down no i it's i and i've talked to you before about this i've been sober for a lot of fucking years i've been sober longer than most young writers have been alive but my sponsor who's been also a writer and he's been my sponsor forever i wanted to make a movie years ago and i did make the movie and he said okay you want to make a movie you haven't done it Break it down into steps, and every morning do the last thing you ever want to do first so you don't spend the whole day worrying about it. Exactly. Do that thing first that you hate the most, and then, and while working a day job, I put together a film and shot it and made it, and again, Tad Williams, my partner in crime, he and I wrote the screenplay, and we just, every day I did one little thing off the list, and it turned out two years later I was buying a ticket to go see my own movie, and I went... Pretty much anything can be done if you break it down that way. You can't write a novel, but you can maybe write a chapter. And if you can write a chapter, you can write the next chapter. And it's what stops us is imagining writing a whole novel. Well, it's not possible to write a whole novel. It's just not possible. But it is possible to write a chapter. And that's like anytime I get daunted by how this next project is something really close to my heart, but very big. And I go, I can't do that. I go, well, I know how to write the first chapter. I think I know that much. And so that's all I'm doing. You know, chapter by chapter getting to, and I'll get to the end. There are so many writers and aspiring writers who never finish. Why do you think that happens when it's like, yeah, I do know this chapter and I know this scene and I want to get this out of my head, but they don't, because I know you're a, you're a pantser. You don't sit there and outline. So, uh, yes, I, I think pantser is a really weird term, by the way. I, I like it. I get what it means, I know. <laughs> but I always thought of pantsing like when we were in kids in grammar school, pantsing was they pulled your pants down in front of everyone. So that I'm not that, okay? I may pull my own pants down. I never pull anyone else, though. I want to make that clear from the get-go as a pantser. <laughs> yes, it's a fly by the seat of your pants is what we call it. Yeah. No, and, and it turns out 
most of my favorite writers write that way. Tim Hallinan, who writes these amazingly complex, interesting novels, never knows where it's going to go when he starts. So do you have a big, giant slush pile of shit that's not finished? No. And what I, I did when I was younger, I've started doing a couple things. I think we get hung up on story a lot as writers, and I don't think story matters shit to me. Never has. It's why I love Raymond Chandler. Story didn't matter to him either. I love character. But what I have to know is, are those characters, is that world enough to sustain me for the next year? And a year is a lot of hours typing. And what I did on this one, there was a, we did a, there was an anthology put together called Feeding Kate to raise money for a, a critic who was having some health problems. And Young Americans was a short story I wrote. And I wrote it for that really as a proof of concept to see if it would hold water. Would it keep me interested? Not would it hold water, because that sounds logical. No. Were those characters people I wanted to spend the next year of my life with? I'm doing the same thing with this new novel, is that I'm I'm taking the world that it's going to be in and writing a couple short stories to go, and as I've written them, I go, okay, this is a world I want to be in. I care about this world. There's something in it that it will keep me going for a year. Because what has happened when I was younger, and I know I did it with scripts and other things, I would start writing and and wouldn't really know the world or whether I love the world. And, you know, you put in 20,000 words and go, ah, oh, this kind of sucks. I don't like that. I'm bored. I don't want to go back to this world. The world wasn't rich enough then. You didn't pick a world that was rich enough and held, held your heart in my mind. The fact is, there's a few of us, very few of us will make a living doing this, which means we're doing this as a labor of love as writers. That's job one. We all have to know that. We do it as a labor of love. And to do a labor of love means you have to do something you're in love with. You have to look at, do I love this story enough? Not do I think it will sell. Not do I think it's a cute idea. Not will my mom think I'm cute or that agent think I'm good. Or, but is this a story I'm personally invested in and in love with enough to go a year with? You know, if I met this, this at, tomorrow I was out in a bar and I met this story, would I say, yeah, that's a one night story. Or would I say that story I think I want to get hitched up to. You know, a one night story. That is fantastic. But you know what I mean? I mean, I, yes, I know what you mean. And the, and it's amazing to hear you say it because, um, before I started this latest book, I, I've been going back and forth almost every day with our, our friend, Eliza Drew, yeah. who's, uh, love her, lo- love her to pieces. And one of the contributors to the anthology, we're all in for protect, uh, protectors yeah. volume two. And, um, and I was, getting to the point where after the first book was getting, you know, yet another rejection and I was just feeling down. I'm like, okay, well my plan was to do, you know, a sequel and to make this more, you know, kind of like a series, at least to, I don't know how many books I'd get out of it, but I wanted more than one book with this character. And I said, but on the other hand, I could write some, I could try to write some vampire story and maybe actually get an agent. And she's like, no, she's like just don't she's like you know you're not gonna you're not gonna want to do it you're gonna struggle with it it's you know and struggling when you do love something is hard enough like I've struggled to get you know I like I hate revising hate it with a passion okay so she's like if you try to cross into a genre just because it's popular when it's not what you want to write it's like what she's like that's just nonsense and it's, I'm like, yeah. there's again with dating there's two things about that that are really strong to me one is if you write something you love at least one person in the universe is going to love it 
if you don't write something you love, that's not guaranteed anyone will love it. So that's one. The second is, I used to say when people would go out dating, and my sons or anyone else asked me about dating, um, I would say, be yourself, because otherwise you might meet the right person and they won't recognize you. And I think that's true about writing. Like, write what you love, because then other readers and writers who like what you like will recognize you. They'll go, oh, that's that flavor I like, too. Where if you're faking it, they'll never notice it. If you're pretending you're someone you aren't, you aren't going to find the true people who will love your voice. And your voice is about truth. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what a voice is. When we talk about writer's voice, we make it very complicated. Like, how do I find my voice? Well, just tell the truth, and that will be your voice. Sure, and that's, you know, whether it's painting or music yeah. or, or you know, that's it, you might have to sit through all of the same schoolwork as everybody else. You know, like I don't, I'm sure there were similarities, even though I went to school in New Jersey. I'm sure we had some similarities in how we went through English class. Well, we didn't probably because I went through dummies English. OK, this is well, really weird. I was thinking about this the other day. So I'm trying to write a new character about this. I went through. They were trying, sitting in my, I, I, because I'm dyslexic, I did go to Dummies English, which was, uh, you know, remedial English. At the same time, I'm reading Shakespeare. So it was really confusing. But I remember the teacher saying, trying to explain what a metaphor is to the class. And he says, the cop pulls the guy over and says, where's the fire, Mario Andretti? And he said, what is that? And I wanted to raise my hand and say, what that is, a mixed metaphor and a bad one at best. And I realized... <laughs> That would make the other kids feel stupid. I thought, just shut the fuck up, Jeff. Just, just get through the damn class. But we've both read Shakespeare. We've both read some Shakespeare. Yeah, I love Shakespeare. Yeah. I think if you want to learn how to how, that's the other thing. I think to write a novel, read Shakespeare, read all of Shakespeare, read Shakespeare until it doesn't sound weird to you and you get it. Because that's the, what they were doing at his time of writing was so, clearly structurally what we're still doing today it just i think that's why structure is ingrained in me i never structure plan out a structure but i look at backwards and go oh yeah it's, it's a perfect structure but shakespeare was really good at sort of nailing the structural aspect of something so that, I think that's why we have to read a lot revising i'm switching gears quickly back to revising yeah get back to that why do you hate revising um once i have something out of my head i kind of don't want to look at it what's that about I don't know. I just feel done. Like I know, first of all, I'm like, I know that you go through a lot of uh, typing issues because of the dyslexia. I'm just a bad typist. <laughs> I, so, you don't claim dyslexia. I'll, I'll invite you into my tribe. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And uh, it's, uh, so I know that it's going to be a lot of grunt work. Mm-hmm. And then I've, the you know, as they say, like the first draft of your story is the the draft for you not the draft to be read by anybody else. So I sort of feel like, okay, I've told myself this story. What else can I do? You know, and I'm, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's one of those things where to me, the revising part is really so hard. It's something I do that I don't know what the other writers do. I've never asked them actually this, but I, when I sit down to write every day, I go through the chapter before it and I rewrite it. And I rewrite up into where I'm at until I know what happens next. So I'm rewriting the whole time I'm writing. I'm always refining it. And I love, love, love language. I love a good sentence. I adore a good paragraph. 
so that part I like, but once the story's out, what I love about it is the pressure's off. I can then just play with language and character because the pressure, when you're pantsing, as they say, when you're writing without an outline, there is a terrifying pressure through the whole thing for me. I'm afraid every time I sit down to type. What if nothing happens? What if I don't know what happens next? What if I'm 50,000 words into a story and this novel doesn't have an end because I got it wrong? That's never happened, but that's my fear every goddamn time. Once I have it out on page and have the whole thing written, I relax then and go, okay, now how can I just shape it and play with it? Now I have some free time. So that's part of it. The other thing for revising for me is I am so lucky I am married to the best editor I know. And nothing goes out that Erica doesn't go through and be really, we just hammer together the language until it's right. And that's a painful, fun process. It's painful because I hate being told I'm not, didn't do it perfect the first time. It's painful as a guy because I'm kind of, you know, I, I want to be the hero who always gets it right. And she's saying you got it wrong. So I have to go through all that male bullshit. But it's wonderful because by the end of it, I get to a better piece of writing. And that's all that matters to me. And then I have Elizabeth White, who I work with, who then as another editor goes in and she beats it up another way. And to me, that's fun in that we're, we're getting it right. Like the hard part for me was getting the story out. And now we're just trying to refine it. We're trying to, in, in um, Young Americans, Elizabeth White noticed there was a character and a subplot. She said, why is that here? And I realized, and she, she, editors are good at pointing out the problem and not very good at solving it if they're good. They shouldn't solve it for you. They point it out, and you, as the writer, have to figure out what you're going to, how you're going to solve it. But she said the subplot just does, it just seemed to slow things down. And I looked, and I realized the reason why was the character wasn't a real character. It was just a kind of standing cutout for a type of character that the plot needed. And once I saw that, I could rewrite it. Well, that was actually exciting to me. It wasn't painful. It was like, oh, cool. I see that problem. I know how to fix that. <laughs> It's almost like getting, I get to be a cabinet maker on some of those things and not be so tortured. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I sort of feel like I've, like something is a big failure though, if it's like that. No. And, and I, and I know, yeah, I mean, I know that's just like part of the process. Like the last comic script that I've been working on forever. Everybody has heard me talk about it a million times. Um, so the, the artist that I've been uh, going back and forth with, um, I abandoned it like two pages to go in order to tackle this novel because it was a, you know, national novel writing month was coming up and he was going off to Greece for a month. So I'm like, all right, so this is a good time for me to forget about the comic for a while. But he, he pointed out where um, he felt like a couple of these characters were just flat because they were background characters. I'm like, well, it's not about them. I just need to know that they are there in the scene that this is expressing that this is a family. So these are all the people that are part of the family, but the character that we care about is this guy over here. And um, so I was afraid then because comics is kind of having this renaissance right now with trying to not make things about white male characters. He's like, can we do something different here? And, And I'm, he's like this, this character, this sister, she bothers me. Well, I don't know. And I said, I said, okay, well, how about this? How about we, how about if I change the com- the whole point of view and that it's no longer a story about this dude sitting in jail, which can sound like a boring story. So it's not going to be just 22 pages of him sitting in jail. <laughs> and we're going to talk about what his wife and her sister are doing. 
He's like, that's a better story. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's you said something before this, which is so key because I get it a hundred percent. I will laugh at it and I get it. Is it feels like you did it wrong, and like we're so afraid of doing it wrong if we have to rewrite it or if somebody calls us out on it. That's a killer to good art. Like you didn't do it wrong. You're in a discovery process. I hope there's a lot that we each write that, that we go, fuck, that led me to a better idea. It didn't mean I did it wrong. It means I'm in the, I'm on the path to a process. That if, if everything I wrote was perfect when I first shat it out, boy, that'd be interesting, but I wouldn't have as much fun. I wouldn't have a year to work on something. I'd be done in about six weeks and I'd move on. I like being in this world. I like that discovery. And it's taken me a long time to put the ego aside and say, you didn't get it wrong. You're in a process. You discovered something cool. Tad Tad says about, and he said it early on about characters, and he said every one of those characters in his, he writes, you know, like in Dragon Bone Chair, which is big epic novels, every character thinks it's their novel. And he said because he writes over six or seven years one of these giant sets of books, he said, I put in a bunch of spear carriers that may or may not be needed down the road because I want to have them alive in the novel if I need them. And he said, and one guy thinks, he thinks, I'm I'm almost the star of the novel. I'm moving up. I'm Other people are dying. I'm moving up. And that guy gets a ch- an arrow in the chest and goes, you shot me? You fucking shot me? Because that character thought it was about them. And I think that's that thing about, like, every nobody is in there just to be a placeholder. Every character, from their perspective, it's novel is about them. The- that was something that J.K. Rowling was brilliant about, because there are times when I felt like her world building was too much for me to just enjoy as a reader because I'm not used to reading fantasy novels. Other people are, but, um, but the way that a character would be mentioned in a paragraph somewhere would come back, you know, seven books later or, or something. And so the, the new movie that's coming out in a, you know, for 2016 is the fantastical beasts and where to find them. And it's about the guy who wrote a book. The book is what's mentioned in the, <laughs> in the Harry Potter things. And you get a little, you get to know a little bit like, you know, Oh, this is his name. And he had a wife and he had a son, but, um, but it's like, she took the author of a book that she mentioned and she then made a whole story about that guy. I don't know how other people work. But knowing enough, knowing Tad has helped me with that. I thought they carried that whole, all that information with them through the whole series. And what Tad was saying is, no, he just puts a, he puts a certain amount of characters in there because he knows he may need them down the road. So he puts kind of interesting, weird characters he may never come back to, but that he's got them. If because over the course of writing for six years on a giant group of books, you change who you are. You change what you want to be writing about. If you don't, you're not living. So if you're changing, then you may need that character who wrote that book back then. So you put enough of that richness in the world so you can pull back to it. And people will go, oh, he knew he was going to get back to the character. And he's going, no, actually, I just put a bunch of characters. I didn't know which ones I was going to need. I think that's much easier to see maybe in music when we see like somebody's happy in love album and then you get their breakup album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. Um yeah, it's, you know, like Adele goes through that. Adele's a common one. Alanis Morissette. Yeah. You know, she probably never wants to sing Jagged Little Pill again. Sorry. Sorry, dear. It's, I don't, I think it's where we as writers allow brand to trap us. And I don't, I may piss people off for the rest of my life because 
I can't write the same book every year. I'm not the same person. And if I'm not growing intellectually and spiritually and in my heart and the way I view the world, then why be on this planet? And if I am doing those things and I'm being honest about what I'm writing, the books are going to be different every year. They won't fit into a happy little formula of, of 50 books in a row that are about the same thing, which doesn't mean you can't write within a series. James Lee Burke has written a series that has gone from when he was a young middle-aged man until he's now writing about what it's like to be an old man. And the books grow with him. But they aren't the same book. You can't read the first book and the last book and think they're the same book. You know, he's letting it grow with him. I, th I think maybe, I don't know if it's so much with books as a reader, because, um, you know, like the Harry Potter books, for example, you, you see them, you see them all growing up and going through ages. But when I think about movies and I think about action movies, I think there was some, there's something kind of stuck with us as viewers where we're just, we don't want those characters to age ever. And that's why shit keeps getting rebooted. I, um, you know, like Die Hard, like we've now seen, you know, like old uh, John McClane. Yeah, I, it's old. I, I worked at doing the trailers on the first one with old John McClane and his son in Russia, whatever the fuck that was. Um, and to be honest, that's what bores me about Hollywood. I am so bored of seeing a reboot of the same idea. I was I was asking this this morning, and I, I not to get into in a, in a heated discussion because I think people will be. I don't mean this full heartedly, but I do wonder if J.J. Abrams wonders if he ever gets to do something that was his, because what he's really good is rebooting, rebooting other people's ideas. And I wonder what interests me the most are not those things that are somebody rebooted, but somebody who actually comes up with something fresh. And the problem with Fresh is if you do two of them in a row, I'm kind of bored because I know what you're doing. The first Die Hard blew my mind. It was so good. And from then on, I kind of go, I know you, I know how you're going to do this. I know how it works. I'm kind of bored. It's why I don't watch sports because I kind of know what's going to happen. One team will win or the other. It, mm -hmm. There's no real surprise. It isn't like if in sports, every once in a while, a quarterback ran down the field, dropped the ball, grabbed a tight end and kissed him on the lips and proposed marriage. I go, fuck, I'd watch that because it's interesting. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? But what's going to happen yeah. is one guy's going to run one way, one guy's going to, somebody's going to get knocked down and one of the two teams will win. There is no third option. So if that's what movies become or stories become, once I know what they're doing, I'm kind of bored. I'm like, eh, okay. So talking about the characters aging and getting bored if they keep, you know, Hollywood studios keep trying to wedge them into their younger roles. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've had a, a you know, like, 13 or something uh i feel like um stallone movies now um but at, at least i don't know I, i'm really not that much of a rocky fan mm. so it's like okay whatever i saw them i saw i think like one two and four maybe or something i don't know <laughs> but um you know but thinking thinking about the that these actors have to go through this and they're kind of wedged how, how do you feel as a writer do you feel old yeah yeah in some ways i am dealing with and i'm trying to deal with it in the writing in different ways and looking at it i'm having a very strange career in that i am because i have white in my beard i am being aged out of motion picture advertising i am being treated i was a big 
lot of award-winning kind of rock star editor. The kind of, they actually bought me. One company wanted to hire me, and I said, well, I'll work for you if you buy me a Harley, the prettiest custom Harley. And it was actually parked in front of their shop when I came in to work for them. So I was that kind of an idiot, you know, young, young gun. My first trailer, big trailer, was RoboCop, and that kind of blew me up. And now I'm treated like a junior editor who's not too smart. And people ask me, I have 25-year-old producers ask me to do things that I fucking invented. And they try to explain to me how it works. And I want to go, you know, before I started cutting, that didn't exist. And I can't say that. So I go, yeah, let me explain. So I'm going through on one part. In Hollywood, the white in my beard has made me treated like I'm kind of the, the stupid stepchild who's there. Hung around too long and embarrassed them. And in literature, I'm treated more and more with respect. And in writing, nobody gives a fuck what age you are if you're doing good work. And we as writers do our best work the more books we have under our belt because we get better at it if we're any good at our craft. Each book is better than the one before it. So it's these two dichotomies. I feel quite old every day that I'm in Hollywood, and I feel young and excited and vibrant when I'm writing a novel. So I can write a novel about being a kid, like Young Americans is just this youth-driven novel because that's the energy of that novel. I felt like a kid while writing it. You know, it just, it brought me back to being that. It's exciting. It has the energy and the pace of a, of a kid could have written that book. Most kids don't have that skill level, but it's written from that perspective. And I think it carries that. And yet in the new novel I'm working on, it has a grandfather. And I'm trying to deal with both of those issues. So anyway, I, do I feel old? Yeah, some days. Some days I feel like <laughs> a damn kid, man. <laughs> the, well, it's funny that, you, you know, you come talking about the movies and, and literature together because the the pack of of people that you have in young Americans and shout out for doing a great transgender character, by the way, <laughs> fucking awesome. Can we say so, written before written two years ago before all the shit blew up in the news? Yes, absolutely. Like <laughs> before people knew who Laverne Cox was and yeah. um, fucking she's, she's awesome. And it's like a John Hughes film about stealing. <laughs> that's a great way of saying it. And I, yes, it's a great compliment. That's what I was hoping for. Whatever I fell in love with when I saw Breakfast Club is what I would love to see, which is these families of kids, you know, that kind of fun. That's I mean, it's just this this gaggle of, of, you know, teen 20 somethings and they're fierce. And, you know, I love that the boys are hesitant and the boys are scared because they were the brains. (laughs) <laughs> and it's the girls who are the masterminds and the muscle so it, it's amazing there's there's a thing that i'm doing in there and i it's part of it is just, is intentional is wanting to i don't believe in politics and writing i really don't but i want to make sure that i'm always stretching how i view gender i want to Make sure that I'm that I'm reflecting different so that gender doesn't become locked into something, you know, and the freedom of not writing about the sex trade meant I had the freedom to write about women a different way because that whole trade has its own thing in it. And and Moses had his own view of it. It was about a Neanderthal growing up. I mean, those were the from the perspective of those novels were Neanderthal's view of women as he slowly evolves into a slightly less Neanderthalic man by three books in. And this allowed me to go okay, let's not write about those. Let's write about this other way that women can be. And Valentina is the my favorite character I've written. 
I, I can't I can't express how much I fucking love her. Oh, I and, and as you read it, she gets better, by the way. She gets she she'll blow. You I mean, because Candy, like Candy is the one. I mean, first of all, I thought, OK, well, Sam, we get to know Sam right away. And I was thinking, oh, wow, Sam is really relatable to me. And, you know, and then Candy was this, you know, one that had way more spunk. And I have some people who they only see me when I'm up. So yeah. I think they probably think I'm that. Um but then, like Valentina comes along, and I'm like, "Oh my god, she's fucking amazing!" She's, yeah. I, I yeah, am. Sam, Sam is probably the most relatable to me. Do you know Sam wouldn't exist without you? Aw, that's true. No, it's true. You, when we were talking, when I was getting ready to write this book, you and I were talking back and forth, and one of the things you were talking a lot about was body image and the way that that mm-hmm. superheroes have to be the certain svelte look and all. And and you're an absolutely beautiful woman, and curvy and all those things and i started thinking about a different way of imagining a female lead and that's where sam came out about came out of uh, well two things one was that and the other was because my elder sister prides herself on her skinniness and i didn't want her to think the book was about her although (laughs) things like her i didn't because then then we get into a whole she then she starts worrying did i present her correctly instead it was like no i know you won't identify with this so you'll be okay with me writing about it but the real thing was knowing you. I just wanted to write somebody who I got what you were saying and thought, that's valid. That's interesting. I want to yeah, write about yeah. a woman who I write early on, on about her, that she she made you rethink what Glitter Rock could be because she wasn't skinny like David Bowie. She wasn't Twiggy. She wasn't, you know, Margot Hemingway. She wasn't any of those people. And it's it, it was interesting the way that the body came up because first of all, it's that she's a stripper. So her job is to be objectified. Um, And the way that she would like once in a while play things off, like how, how candy was this classically beautiful character that all the boys, you know, went crazy for. And, but Sam had to use her sensuality. Yeah. What that, you know, in order to actually come off way stronger than candy. It's a, it's candy's interesting. And I really wanted to get this right about, because a thing about it of being coming of age for me is sexuality, teenage coming of age is a lot about our sexuality, discovering it. And candy's thing when Jacob's in love with her and can't understand why she's with all these different men. And Sam says, you've either got to be able to live with it or walk away because that's who she is. If you're going to love her, you got to love who she is. And he says at one point, what do you want for Christmas? He says, I just want candy. And she says, you can't have her. She's not a thing you can have. She's a person. And to know that even that the the cute candy who all the boys love and who fucks around a lot and has a lot of different boyfriends, that's her sexuality. And that has to be okay, too. Like you have, that has, that's an okay, like there's not a wrong way to be in this. That's what all three of those, you know, all three of the women that are leading this, um, you know, this pack of thieves, all three of them own that completely, you know, Ah. and maybe that's because of that was the era. Um, No, I know we talk about the seventies a lot, but yeah, it is. It's the era, but it's also the intentionality of, of trying to, I mean, it really is in many ways, a woman's novel. It's written from that perspective. Oh, vastly. And yeah. that was like when, when Sam actually trusts a guy and then he just fucks up. <laughs> and it's like, 
she's, you know, she kicks herself. She kicks herself harder than any mobster that's going to come after her. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love that about her, though. It is, I grew up with two sisters. So, and I grew up, I've had best friends have been women my whole life. That's just, you know. So I've known, I've known a lot of women. And that thing of women who, if somebody says, you aren't good enough for me, or I don't like you, or I rip you off, the women I've loved and known have all said, what did I do wrong? I did, I fucked this up. And I wanted to look at that too and go, what is that about? Like, what the fuck? They did the shitty thing. Why do you feel shitty about it? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the way a lot of, a lot of us are. Oh my God. I was doing the, the audio book for this, which is amazing. Oh, so you got to record? Yeah, I, well, I worked with a woman and producer who did it, and they sent me chapters, and I got to audition people. Oh, oh, wicked. Okay. And M. Eldridge, who did it, is this amazing voice. She's done, I don't know, 60 books or something, but she's young. And I wanted somebody young, and I auditioned men and women, and I came up with this really weird thing. Because the book is split between the brother and the sister's perspective. I thought, well, I'm not sure which will work. Every time men read women, their women's voice was kind of whiny. And I would say, and this, I'm talking about six different narrators. I would say, could you read it again? Just send me a new audition. Sam is not whiny. Give her some balls. It'd come back and she was whiny again. And I went, all these men, the only voice they know how to give a woman is kind of whiny. And then I had women start reading it. Women could read the men, no problem. And I thought there's a cultural phenomenon at play here. Like, M happened to nail everyone. I love her read. You can there's it's on uh, Audible and there's a there's a sample of it up on Amazon and you can hear her voice. She's, I think she's amazing. She really got it. But what she got was Sam's balls. And I went, if you don't have that, we don't have a we, this novel doesn't work. If she's whiny, this novel doesn't work. And culturally, I don't know why men don't know that women don't have to be that. <laughs> Sorry guys, they don't. Well, it's so funny that, you know, that you talk about like Sam having, you know, chutzpah and, and the balls. That's the, that's the, the term. I mean, colloquial, so, that's has, the colloquialism we say. She has solid steel ovaries is the one I tend to use a lot. Yeah. Because like Betty White, she said, why do we say that somebody's a pussy if it means that they're weak? She's like, do you, she's like, a pussy can take a pounding. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Betty White, I want to be you when I grow up. I am so. I am a work in progress, okay? I am a fucking work in progress. There's a, a young woman from the Unitarian Church in my high school group, and she has just been nailing me over the years. And every time I say pussy or one of those, she goes, Josh, you know there's better words than that? Because what you're saying is being a woman is weak or wimpy, and that's not true, and I know you don't believe it, so change your language. I'm, I'm trying, man. <laughs> it depends. But if there's the thing, if your character is saying it, then it's talking about the character, not about you. And I think that was like uh, a lot of people face that criticism when it comes to things like racist language or transphobic language. Like you have this cop that comes in and kind of gives Valentina some shit. And, it, you know, it's like you're you're making the character the asshole, not you. Yeah, no, I and, and if you're afraid to write anything, if you're afraid to write any word, if you're afraid, if you're so if you're worrying about somebody looking over your shoulder when you're writing what they'll think of you, it will always be shit that you write. So I don't I don't write in a room with anybody looking over my shoulder. I write from what's in my head and hope to fuck it's good. 
and hope that I'm evolving as a human enough that it comes into my subconscious that when I write, it shows up. But I don't think about that when writing. I think about that when living my life. I sit and talk to me like I talk to you and, and hear what you're saying about body image. And I hear what you say about this. Or I hear what this young woman said to me about using the word pussy. And hope to God that filters into my writing. But I can't logically sit down and go, oh, this might be offensive to somebody. I don't know if I should say that. Because then I'm just going to write crap, you know. Right. You can't ever write good. I can't. I shouldn't say you. Other people write great, so I don't know how the fuck they do it. Me. If I sit down <laughs> to write anything and I think, A, when I was younger, if I write this right, will it get me laid? Well, mm-hmm. that's going to turn out as crap. If I write this right, will people think I'm a nice guy? That always will turn out as crap. If I write this just correctly, will my mother, will anybody else like me? Will an agent like it? All that turns out crap for me. It just shit comes out of me at that point. No good writing. Good writing comes out when I don't imagine anyone's in the room with me. When it's just me trying to tell the fucking story. And Well, that might be because you're not an asshole. Well, yeah, but I, I'm a work in progress, as I've said. I'm, I'm a bit of an asshole. I'm, I say shitty things. I don't say things correctly. But <laughs> it, we are all works in progress, right? We're all trying yeah, to get absolutely. somewhere. And if we recognize that, then maybe we're doing a little better than average, you know? I, I guess that's for me is it's, I don't know whether I am or I am not an asshole, but I know I'm trying to get better every year. And I hope that shows up in the writing, you know? But I also don't ever plan to put it in the writing. <laughs> pick on me about maybe, my daily speech. Just don't pick on me about my writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe in 30 years, then we'll have a, you know, a part two memoir and it'll be, you know, a much different Josh Stallings. I, God, I hope so. I hope that there's a different me. I, yeah. I also think it's weird. I've had this discussion with people about language and people get all hung up on, is that PC? You're being too PC. And you can't be too, because there's part of PC that matters to me is it's called correct. Politically correct, it upsets people. People, ah, oh, you're being politically correct. Well, there's part of that. It's two words. One is correct, and yes, I want to be correct, to be honest. I don't want people using the word retarded to mean all the shit that they think it means. I don't want to find myself using, when I was in high school, I was called woman because I was into glitter rock. And the jocks would go, woman! And I would think, that's your best insult? Really? I thought, oh, yeah. I like women. So, really? That's, that's your best... But that languaging said to every woman in the quad who heard it, you aren't as good. We don't think you're as good as us. You're less than. And so language matters deeply because we got a whole generation of young girls coming up that we want to say something to, that we don't want them to grow up thinking they're less than. You know? That was a ramble. But that's an awesome ramble. But before you go, do you have to go? No, no, no. I'm here. I was going to say, because I, I mean, I know we were talking about like the time period of the 70s and everything. Do you think that you could tell this story in a modern setting? Because I think about things like technology and having technology like fail on my characters was one of the hardest thing for me to get through. Oh, yeah. um, was trying to figure out like, OK, well, there's usually cameras everywhere and there's cell phones everywhere. And, you know, it just like it, it, it feels a little bit cheap, but sometimes it had to be like, Oh, but she left her charger at home or something. I don't know. It's, but it is really you know. hard. It's, um, I think some of us have to embrace it. The Moses books, because they're written traditionally as kind of traditional stuff, I, as tra- traditional 
hard-boiled in a certain way, which is a guy going around trying to solve a problem driving around instead of getting on the internet and just Googling it. And to do that, I had to create a character who was, again, a Neanderthal, who hated technology. Yeah. Felt technology was created to make him feel stupid. And he says that. Like, like his young partner's always going, why don't you just Google that? And he, says, and, and he lets you know, computers just make him feel stupid. He doesn't want to use them. Well, that was a conceit I had to use so I could write the novels. This, I love being in the 70s because I kind of love not having all that technology. Um. Tim Hallinan just wrote one of his books in the Hope Rafferty series, which is about a travel writer in Bangkok. And it's all about some photos that wind up on a cell phone that a kid loses his cell phone and his father's going to hate him because it's a new iPhone and it's expensive. So he goes and buys one from, from one of these corner vendors and it winds up having these pictures on it that now everyone's trying to kill them to try and get away from these kids. And I thought, he's actually thinking about technology as how do I play with it? Like, what are the things that it could do? As opposed to right. fighting it the way I fight it so hard. He's actually going, well, how would this work? Okay, what 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 would that be to a story? Well, there's, um, it's interesting because when we talk about a heist, I I tend to forget that it's it's not always high tech to accomplish the goal because there was, it was just, um, I'm going to have to look this up to find the link and include it in the show notes, but it was um, a bunch of men in their like late sixties and seventies who had been career criminals, got back together to try and break in to something. And it was a matter, they, they spent like three years planning it. And they would like the one guy would like sit in the bar across the street to do everything he could to calculate, you know, like record when activity was going on. And it was this most amazing, incredible story. But it was things as small as like cutting wires. Like, okay, well, you know, you need to be at least some sort of competency with electronics, which I'm not um, to know where the alarm system is to cut the wires yeah, and then guys who know how to use power tools to, you know, break in through these big cement walls and they, they got caught. But <laughs> to me, it was just, to me, it was still just like this brilliant idea that these old cahoots came together, you know, these coots got, and they, you know, they were just like, they're like, Hey, we still got some, some life and juice in us. Let's go break into <laughs> the bank of England or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> I'm like, this is awesome. That's, writing a heist novel has, like, you've got to make a bunch of shit up that I don't normally think about. Like, how do you do it? What would you do? How are those, How what does technology, what would you need to do it? And time and place matter so much to me that it informs so much of my heist. There was a big thing that people of the time, people of my generation, will get certain jokes in it that other people won't. Like, there was a... The Pinto was a car that was pretty much destroyed by a myth, and the myth was that they blew up when they were rear-ended. Turns out they weren't any more apt to blow up than anything else, but that was the myth at the time. So I have my kids blow up a, a Pinto in the story. And it's those kind of things that are like... Time and place gave me that. I think time matters so much when I write, like, what era it's in. The thing that I wrote in Collectors, I mean in Heroes, that the 
anthology we were both in um, is about Daryl Gates and Nancy Reagan and a crack house raid. But it's about a period and the period. I like periods. They mean, they give me something else to play with. It's like, there's a lot that they inform for me. So I think I'm always going to like to play with that with period at some level. And young Americans wouldn't, couldn't, I, you asked me earlier whether it could, it could happen now. And I don't think so. I, I don't, we're different. We're in a different place sexually. It's like right now, my nieces and nephews, if they find out someone's gay, they're like, so what do I care? I wasn't going to date them. So I don't really care if they're gay or straight. The seventies was, there was, it was more outlaw to have that a point of view. So there's Mm -hmm. more stuff that's just culturally and time and place for me. I, I, Time and place matter every, and I don't know what, they matter so much to me when I'm writing, like knowing the time and place and getting it. I'm, I'm working on this big LA novel and it's, I want to write my love letter to LA and it's about time and place. It's about the place, but the Moses books, people who live in Northeast LA and East LA where I live, love them because they know all the places in them. Even if I've changed all the names, which I do just so that someone doesn't go, those seats are supposed to be orange and you said they're yellow. I don't give a shit. So I changed the name. Well, I wasn't sure because you call, you call the club, you well, you referred to one of the clubs, didn't you, as, as the city? I did in a, I think that's in an interview, the one that... The, the interview, it, okay, yeah. but that's, you call it's it called Taxi, Taxi Dancer. Taxi Dancer, okay. which was the city. It's based on that. But again, if I wrote about the city, then someone would get... I, I hate it when you get facts wrong. Like, I'm reading a book and it's about something I know and you get it wrong. I go, what? And it takes me out. So the way I get around that is... I just, I fictionalize everything. I did one thing that was, has gotten me in trouble is there's a coffee shop in it called Lions, which I intentionally spelled like the cat Lions. And the coffee shop when we were growing up had a Y in it. And in the, is L-Y. And two people have already contacted me, one of them, Tad, saying, you know, you misspelled Lions. And I'm trying to go, I should have called it Tigers. It would have been a better joke. Which is, yeah. there's a lot of these kind of weird inside jokes in this that if you grew up with me and with my friends, you'll go, I know what you're talking about there. <laughs> but that was one where they just thought I spelled it wrong. And really what I'm trying to do is fictionalize it so that I can, I have freedom to put the, the damn booth any place I want them, you know? Yeah, I, I, I like to fictionalize uh, locations to like kind of base them on other things and then, and then, you know, make them. Just if they, I don't know that anybody would, uh, who read them would have any, res, you know, catch the resemblance of anything other than, okay, well, this is a small town here and this is a, you know, a hotel here. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I think they're pretty generic. Um, I'm thinking about the, like the technology and stuff and some people are like really great at inventing or at least I think at least taking a concept of something that's a theory and then inventing the technology that would solve the problem. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you would ever consider doing that, like thinking about stealing diamonds and stuff. Cause diamonds have uh, serial numbers now laser engraved and you don't notice it when you buy the diamond, like the, a good jeweler will show it to you so that you've seen it. And, I'm like, Jesus, can you even steal diamonds anymore? I, because you can't fence them. Well, unless, no, unless I, they're big enough that you oh. can recut them. If you can, yeah. It, I but mean, they lose value the minute you do that. So Right. So that's the thing. Like there's, you know, like an episode of Leverage where they, um, they say that there's a laser that can 
un that can take the mark out. And I'm like, oh, well, that's probably an invented thing because I, I could be wrong. I don't know. But it's funny, though, that upsets people as much as anything else. They'll go, well, that doesn't exist. You're going, it's a fiction. Of course it doesn't mm -hmm. exist. They made it up. I don't, I don't, I make a lot of shit up. I make all kinds of shit up. I think that's our job. I don't feel like it's my job to teach you how to do crime in a way that will actually teach you how to do crime. It's my job to make up shit that's interesting for characters to do so you can see these characters doing different things. You know, it's, I don't know that I could write like science fiction. I don't know that I could ever write. I don't know that my brain works that way. I realized everything that I write has some sense of me needing to, to dig into something real and then see how I feel about it. And, you know, it's like I, I, for the, for the new book, which is about LAPD and about how we treat mentally ill people and about a bunch of things. But I went down and met with an, the LAPD, a guy who runs the division. I, and I talked to these people and that starts my brain going, I don't know that I have the brain to sit down and go, and 30 years in the future, I'm going to invent shit. I just, it isn't my area of research. It isn't the area that interests me. The guys I know who are good at it, that's what they read about all day long. They love reading about science and where it's going and what's being invented and where are we going to be. It just isn't what, it doesn't trip my trigger. I don't know why, but it, it's, so I don't think I'll be writing those, okay? Okay, that's all. I was wondering. And, but I have one thrill, more thing. Not coming. <laughs> not a, not a, all right, awesome. Um, I, so when I was trying to look up Young Americans on Amazon, I found a couple different hits, and then I thought, okay, well, this is weird. Why, are, why do these look this way? So I went over to your website and clicked the link from your website, and I'm like, oh, okay. So through your website, um, if you click that link, the book is $13. And yet there's, like, sellers out there that are selling your book for as much as $44. <laughs> I was wondering how you felt about that. I think it sucks ass, by the way. It, it does. Awesome. And the reason it sucks out... Because they're making the money that you're not. Well, and more importantly, I actually lowered my profit this last year by lowering my book cost. And because... And it's only a dollar a cop of all my books. But across the books, I had them do that because it's hard times for readers. You know? And I made a point, if anybody ever wants one of my books and they contact me, I send one to them. I, you know, just because... We are living in economically hard times and books fucking matter. And when somebody takes a piece of art and makes it more expensive than people can afford, I say, fuck you. Adele has a concert in LA, sells out in 45 minutes, and now her tickets, which were 120 bucks, are 1000 bucks. Well, fuck you. The one percenters shouldn't be the only people who get to go see Adele. And the people who can afford $45 for my book aren't the only people who should be able to read my books. They should be in libraries. I, I really, I, I had this thing lately where a bunch of my books showed up. No, Young American, not a bunch of them. Young Americans showed up being on a pirated site where you paid for a subscription and then you could download it for free. And it outraged me. And somebody said, well, why? Uh, why are you so outraged about it? And I thought about it kind of de in depth and had this conversation. What I got to was, if you get it from a library for free, I don't get paid. I don't care. I'm happy. I just don't want some other son of a bitch getting the money who all they did was put up a website and steal my stuff. And I'm a little concerned that we have a culture that believes content should be free. 
because there was it, it was on on Thomas Pluck, our you know our other yeah. dear friend. Uh, he had a post up recently where somebody, and the guy, I mean, it did make me pause and think. One of his commenters said, "Well, what's the difference between pirating and a library?" And it was like, "Well, the library is there based uh, because it exists from tax dollars. It is." provides many services not only the books but libraries provide services and they provide the cultural environment instead of some server um and like you said you know a lot of a lot of creators out there will you know will just willingly say look if you can't have something i will give it to you um that's why they have things like you know like i have the patreon going a friend of you know a lot of other friends of mine have patreons going and um you know or they'll have that uh, in comics, there's sort of a, I can't remember what they call it now, but it's like a, like a tip jar system, like a pay yeah. as you pay whatever you want thing. They're like, um, you name your own price. So That's some awesome. people are, you know, so some people will pay $5 or $6 for, you know, and other people can pay one or nothing. If they choose nothing, it still goes through. I kind of love that a lot. It's, there's a, uh, teacher who I've done Skypes with in St. Paul teaches a kind of rough, rough inner city school and his kids, a lot of the Moses books were the first books they've read that were fiction and they fell in love with me as a writer. I heard from him. He said, as soon as I can get enough money, I'm going to buy young Americans. I can't wait. And I immediately got in touch with him and said, I'm sending you three copies. See who else needs it. Let me know. Because I'm, I'm starting to think I'm going to put together a website that's about teachers and librarians and, and authors giving back. Because if it weren't for librarians, I wouldn't be educated. I wouldn't know what good writing is. I wouldn't have had somebody say to me, you're a really smart kid, although you don't test that way. Why don't you read James and the Giant Peach? That happened because libraries existed, because teachers cared. And that matters deeply to me. I know too many of us who grew up poor, who libraries where we learned to read and where we learned good literature. And there were people in there who cared about us and showed us what books would work. So libraries, I love. I don't give a shit if they make money for me. Who cares? They're getting readers, books in readers' hands. That's gorgeous. I, I get to the point where, first of all, I want to be artists to be able to make money and make, make a livable yeah. wage. Um, but when it's something like a library or... Um, you know, or going and giving out whatever free copies you want. To me, that's the difference there is choice. Absolutely. It was the creator's choice to give it away yeah. versus some total stranger sticking it up on a server. It's the tip jar idea for it to work. And I think it's great is we need to see if we what I want to say to young people. and I hate to say this about young people, but it's more prevalent in 20 somethings than in 50 somethings is look what happened to news when we stopped paying for content. There are very few good reporters out there anymore because what we did was we democratized news, but what that meant is everybody's basically putting up their own opinion, not telling us news. There aren't very, And that's because we stopped paying for content because we demand our news free. Well, in 10 years, if no writers, I just read a thing in The Guardian that said writing, novel writing has become the purview of the wealthy and the retired. And that broke my heart. It's like, yeah. if, if we aren't going to pay for content, sorry, kids, you're 10 years away from not having any good writers out there because they can't afford to do it. And that's fucking sad. And 
that's I don't know a single writer who isn't having a hard time right now. And I mean, big writers are having a hard time. It's a hard time to try to make a living because everybody wants it for free. And at some point, you've got to go, you're responsible with your dollar. How are you? Somebody said this. Oh, another thing on one of my sites when I was talking about piracy. And he said, they think it's so punk to steal a book. And yet they will give $600 to Apple for a phone. Right. They are sticking it to the man. They're sticking it to the artist. And right. we need to get that ethic out there. We need to start talking about it publicly and saying, really? Really? You'll, you'll give Apple all your money and you say, fuck the writer? Really? Or Torrent. You're going to people do this all and drive me crazy because I work in the movie businesses. They steal movies and they, they say, well, it's not, it's not hurting anybody. It's just hurting big corporations. No, the writer on that movie has a piece of the action. Everybody has a piece. And that's how they're making their fucking living. And there's creative people all down the line who depend on that movie making money so they can afford to do another one next year. And if you like the movie, don't you want them to do another one next year? Don't you want them to have be able to have a family and a home and all those things so they can afford to make another movie? Because if you think you should get it for free, that won't exist anymore. That was definitely something that I saw uh, in in webcamming was people come into the room right away um, because they want to see if it's for free. And you can see, you as the, the performer, can see if they have anything in their bank. If they have no, if they have nothing to tip you, then you have literally zero incentive. That's I've noticed that in a lot of the sex trade on internet is there is so much free stuff out there. I'm wondering when it was internet was originally driven by porn Mm -hmm. and driven by sex for sale. Porn sounds uh, pejorative, and I don't mean that. I mean you know it's just sex for sale. I think that's better for me. Is sex for sex is commerce. But now there's so much free stuff. I'm going. How are these? How's anybody making money off this anymore? You know, it's it's hard. A lot of them um, are doing it through public appearances. They're still dancing for the women. Anyway, yeah. there's there, you know, the they do things like Playboy, which now is like basically defunct. Yeah. Um, Playboy is now a pop culture magazine. And Isn't that weird. <laughs> yeah, it's totally weird. Um, so they have to get it all in these other ways. And I think that's what. I think it is the same as writing. Like I know a lot of writers who have to be teachers yeah. or you have a, a day job that you don't hate. Yeah. Some and days. That, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I don't think you would have done it since you were 21. No, no I, there's it. so much I love about it. I, 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 but no, yeah, I agree. It's, but what it means is you're getting novels out of me, but it's only because a lot of people don't, you know, my wife says, Josh, you can't compare other people to you. And I have, Take, it's hard for me to get to that point, but the truth is yeah. I tend to work, you know, most days I sleep four hours and that's the only way I can do it is I work two jobs. Well, not everyone can do that. It doesn't mean they aren't a great writer. They may just not have that physical stamina. They may not have that Viking gene that says, keep fucking going. That doesn't make me better or worse than them. They may write a better book, but we'll never read it because they had to spend their day doing a job that burned them out. That's sad to me. That's like, it's anytime we lose a voice because they couldn't afford to write makes me sad because I need lots of voices, man. I need, I need to hear everybody's voice. Come on, people. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise it's just going to be more rich white guys producing content. Yeah. And it's, they bore me. They bore me to tears. <laughs> so, you know, complete socialist I mean... now. So that's a whole other story. <laughs> Oh, awesome. All right, Josh, before I let you go, let's inform the uh, the kind listeners where they can find you 
and um, you know, get to know you and stuff. And maybe I don't know if you're doing any kind of touring for for the new year. I am not uh, what I'm doing. I'm uh, the uh, God. I'm mumbling. I am going to be in Austin at Book People. Um, on February 1st with Terry Shames. And if you haven't read Terry Shames, shame on you. She's fucking awesome. She writes about a, a small town uh, retired chief of police in a small Texas town. And she's just awesome. So anyway, he, she and I are reading at Book People on February 1st. And other than that, I'm just waiting to see what comes up next. You can always find me at joshstallings.com. And that has links to my me socially. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm on Amazon. Your books, can, your local bookstore can order me. Most of them, I'm only carried by about three bookstores in the country right now. I'm trying to widen that out because I sell really well wherever I am, but it's hard to get into bookstores. But your bookstore can't order them. They are through Ingram, so they, any bookstore can get them. And what the fuck else? <laughs> I don't know. Are you doing like BoucherCon or? Yes, I am going to be at Left Coast Crime and then at BoucherCon. Left Coast Crime is in Phoenix this year, end of February. And that looks to be some big fun. It's nice. It's a littler conference, so I like it. And BoucherCon is where this year? I don't remember. It might be, is that the one in California? No, or that was it... last year. We were in California. Last year. Oh, New Orleans. I'm already signed up for that. That'll be fun. Although I can't, I wish I could afford to spend time there before or after. And you go to these conferences. I really can't take the time off. So I will be at new Orleans, but I'll really just be in a convention center. (laughs) So So you're not going to get to enjoy the, the environment of new Orleans, the life, the life that's down there. I find the life and the death because new Orleans is one of those cities all about, you know, horror and they, they honor their dead there. My son had a horrible experience there. He was, he was living as a traveler, he and his girlfriend. And because they're a biracial couple, she's black and he's white, they just were treated like shit. And he said he couldn't, there was something after Katrina and all that's going on that New Orleans felt so oppressively dark and painful Aww. that he said, I couldn't wait to get out of there. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I've never been. It sounds amazing. Uh, me too. I, I've been there before. I've been there pre. I always like it. I think there's as much pain there as there is music in the walls. So it's a beautiful place. So those are the places you can find me. And anybody who wants to reach out to me, sure should. Yeah, totally. They should. And All right. They well... should read Young Americans and listen to the goddamn audio book. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, guys. Don't forget that you can like check out the samples of that. Um, it's like, it's very convenient and, and wonderful. Yeah. So even on iTunes, what the hell peoples? <laughs> nice. Thank you so much for inviting me on here. I just love chatting with you. I love chatting with you too. I'm so glad that you were able to squeeze it in. Cause I know you got crazy ass day. So. Uh, it's going to go blow up now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you guys can follow me on Twitter as well at Elizabeth Amber and uh, on Instagram at Amber Unmasked, which is mostly cat pictures um, and Facebook, all that other stuff. But yeah, then don't forget to go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked and uh, contribute to my tip jar. That's really swell. So um, anyway, this I think was the most awesome way to kick off the new year. Thank you. Happy new year. Happy new year.